Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Today, we want to reflect on influence. You know, we all influence one another in a time of worship. Our response to God, how we, how we stand, how our focus is, it affects not only ourselves, it doesn't only affect the heavenlies, but affects the people next to us, the people around about us. We're singing these incredible words. All through the morning we've been singing incredible words. And there's been a fantastic opportunity for us to come and to bring our worship to God. That's our primary focus. But I think secondarily, we can encourage one another without actually even talking to the person next to us or those around us. The way we, in which we approach the act of worship, the, the process of worship, the, the way in which we stand even. I want to encourage us this morning because our posture, our focus, the, the lean-in that we have towards God affects people around us. Now I know it happens in the classroom, at school. My, my attitude, my focus, my lean-in affects my class. It happens in the workplace, in your office. There'll be an impact. One person can have an impact the way they lean in, the way they focus. It happens at home. Gosh, it happens at home. Where everyone knows you most. Your impact, it happens at home. It, it happens on the job site. And it, as I've said, it happens at church. The impact that we can have on the people around us. I don't want us to think today, this is the last song. We should be sitting down. I want us to think, worshipping God is my first priority. I don't want us to think, I don't want us to think that when we come to this, that singing, singing, I don't really like singing. Well, I've got news for you. You don't actually have to sing to worship. That's where the body posture kicks in. That's where your lean into God begins to make a difference. It manifests itself. And people pick that up. So it's not that I hate singing, it's that, hey, I love God. And I don't want you to think, I don't want you to think that um, I don't really feel like it. I don't feel like worshipping God today. I want you to think about the love of God. I want you to think that all oh, this song is perfect for contemplating the immense love of God that He he left behind the crowd and went searching for you and for me. And that's love. Love so amazing, to quote Wesley, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So in this moment, can I encourage us as we affect the people around about us by our attitude, our focus, our posture, our leaning towards God. Can we, can we 
bring a praise and a worship to God. I know, I know Tim's encouraged us as well. I want to add my encouragement to that. And let's, let's really praise God as if He is actually worth it today. Let, can I encourage you not to have hands down? Can I encourage you to have hands up? Can I encourage you, if you don't feel like singing, singing's not your forte, shout it out. Speak it out. Lift up a praise to God. Let's sing together. Here we go. Come on, lift up those those hands that are down. Lift those hands. Surrender to God. All because of you, God. All because of you. Hallelujah. just for a minute imagine God was actually in the room and he's walking down the aisle and he's walking across the front and he's walking up the back and he's come he's actually sitting next to you how amazing how amazing how amazing how amazing the truth is God is in the room. He's, he is in the aisle. He's walking at the front. He's at the back. He's next to you. Yeah, I, I think that should elicit some kind of response. I, I do think that applause is great for our God. Shouting is great for our God. He is worth it. He is worthy. He is worthy. Hallelujah. 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 My goodness. My goodness. Woo. 
Thank you so much, team on the, uh, in the black box there, and team on the stage here, and all the other team that are out in the other room that we don't see, and they make sure the pictures come up and the words come up. Your job is not over yet, team. Your job is not over yet. But I will give you a little respite. And we'll come back and we'll praise God some more at the end. Thanks, everybody. Please take your seats. How awesome is God? How awesome is God? Okay, how about this much? <laughs> That's, that's, a small, that's a small concept. It actually does make a C. It's a small concept. God is immense. At creative team night on Tuesday, Tim spoke to the team. He had this image, which was a bottle with a message inside with a cork firmly placed on the top. And he said, our lives are like that. Our lives are like bottles with a message inside and a cork firmly placed on the top, and we are bobbing around in the tide. He also said he thinks that image is for our whole church, not just for the creative team. I, I think I agree. I agree. I think we are like bottles bobbing around. We have the message inside us, the cork's firmly on the top, and we're just bobbing around. Do you know what? Popping the cork releases the good news story that is in you. And nobody else has got your good news story. So when, when we're talking about influence, as we are today, when we're talking about influence, only you have the story that will unlock and release influence for the people that you are in the midst of the people whose orbit you find yourself in. In fact, other people more clever than I have used the term sphere of influence. Your story, your story will be the impact point for some people It will change their whole life when they hear your story. But if the cork's on the top, no one's going to hear the story. And I believe that it is the point of cork popping where the story is released to the world. That's our gospel impact. When we pop the cork... I did that on Tuesday. I actually felt that... Should we try it? Let's try it. I felt on Tuesday, if we all did that pop cork sound, it might actually break something over us. So you ready? If, if, if you can't do it, you can go and go... All right? Ready? We'll try to do it all together. One, two, three... The cork is popped in Jesus' name. So with the cork popped, we now have the capacity, we now have the, the freedom to tell our story to people. We now have an opportunity for gospel influence. I was very interested to, to look in the dictionary and find the derivation of the word influence. It comes from a Latin word, influentum which basically means flowing in, inflow, influentum, inflow. A little bit later on in medieval time, they had another word which they called influentia, which was also 
uh, meaning the same thing. It sounds a lot like our English word influenza. And in fact, it is the origin of our word influenza. Because they had a belief that there was something in the stars that affected humans on Earth, and they called that the influentia. It was the impact, the influence, something that happened to us as, as this celestial fluid flowed down. It changed things on Earth. In our modern use, and on the back of our, our little influence document here, we have this definition. Influence is typically to affect or change how someone or something develops, behaves, or thinks. But I would suggest that we add a little bit to that definition, especially to cause change without directly forcing that change to happen. See, influence is all around us. Uh, food. So we are influenced to eat certain things. Uh, fashion. Influenced to wear certain things. Music and entertainment. I can talk about music groups and musicians that I have heard, and that may influence other people to listen to that same music. So if I talk to Andrew Darcy about Jaco Pastorius, he would know who I'm talking about. And he may have been influenced by his playing uh, like, like me. We're influenced by the environment around us. So when uh, back in, oh gosh, when I was... When I was in primary school, we had the broad-brimmed hats. And then American television started to come in and a lot of the people in the American sitcoms wore baseball caps. Well, we didn't actually play baseball in Australia. We played softball. And uh, I noted the influence of baseball caps. There's some there, right there. I noticed the influence of baseball caps as opposed to the Akubra, the, the broad brim hat. Now look, Australia's fighting back, folks. The broad brim hat is on its way back. I predict a comeback for the broad brim hat and the influence of Australian culture on Australians. <laughs> influence can be a positive thing. The book of Proverbs talks about as iron sharpens iron. So a man um, strengthens or sharpens his friend. It could be negative. Lindsay's already referred to the, the great toilet paper uh, mystery. Where has it all gone? Why has it all gone? It's influence. Someone hears something and they're influenced by that and they go and get a trolley load. Influence can be motivated by our admiration, by fear, recognition, coercion, can be our upbringing, could be tradition. Um, Many times in the book of Kings, as one king died and their son took over to be the king, it says, and they did exactly what their father did, whether it was for good or for evil. So they follow on and the influence of their father. Now, here's an interesting thing I was thinking about, that influence we cannot specify that I will influence Isaac or. I can't actually specify that. I can't guarantee that I will be an influence on Isaac or, and I can't regulate it. I might be, but I might do everything possible to influence him and it doesn't touch him. 
So we can't guarantee our influence. It's not like a lot of other things in life. Influence is, is that kind of, we, we do the best we can and hope some of it rubs off, pretty much. Influence works both ways. Pastor Ben was telling us during the Vision Sundays, and again, it's in our document here. Oh, there's a sticker. Anyone like this sticker? I have one on my base case. I know they were given out free last time. It's not like I'm giving you something. Anyone like, anyone like it? Put it on your phone case. Put it on your phone screen. I'll throw it out. Okay. God's influence on us and God's influence through us. So it's like two ways. We are influenced and then we in turn influence others. We can be a party to a subtle influence like, you know, the corrosive kind of nature of hanging with the wrong crowd. You don't realise it, but slowly you're changing the way you talk, you're changing the way you dress, you're changing the places that you go to. It's kind of a slow and insidious kind of corrosive influence. Or you could have an influence that you specifically, you say to yourself with purpose and intention, I am going to place myself in the influence of this person. So it could be you listen to Stephen Furtick podcast. Um, and influence, I think, operates like the solar system. So Paul Sebastio is a planet, and I'm a planet. And so we at some... Stand up, Paul Sebastio. So at some point, at some point, <laughs> see, he's orbiting, and I'm or orbiting, and now we're closer together than we were, and then I'm going like this, and then we'll go around in another orbit and we'll and we affect each other see it's affecting me thank you Paul but it is like it is like that in orbit now is Oliver Stewart here today okay well he's 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 got a big dream okay he wants to be in the in the um mechanicing for the big cars the whatever they call them V8s yes thank you and um so let's, I was going to get him up here, but let's, let's pretend he's just there. So imagine him. And I'm over here. Now, his influence orbit is going to be with, and, and he's currently, he's working for Ford. As, we can take that off the thing so no one knows. It's, it's not a plug for Ford. <laughs> Though I did, have a Ford, I did have a Ford motor car many years ago, and it was uh, very reliable. <laughs> so he's working for Ford. And I'm teaching school music and drama. It's very unlikely that I will have much influence in the Ford Motor Garage. <laughs> and, and equally and opposite, it's very unlikely that Oliver is going to have much influence on my students in the classroom. Because we have a different sphere of influence, a different orbit. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Ben said that influence begins as a seed. You'll remember that, that famous magic trick. 
that he did. He had the table here with the, uh, the little uh, raised garden bed and he asked us all to close our eyes and then he, he put the seed in and then pff, sunflower. It begins as a seed and when it's cultivated, it will grow. Ben spoke to us about God's adding his super to our natural. This morning I thought I would try to extract from the book of Esther some ideas that I find that will be helpful to us in considering how can we grow our influence. What can we do that will grow our influence? God has got his part to play in the Holy Spirit, no doubt has got a very big part to play in how our influence will be towards other people. But we can do our natural part to increase our influence. I like to think of this as a surprising story of influence in the book of Esther. I like to think of it as surprising because, first of all, both Esther and her cousin Mordecai belonged to a minority people group and they were living in a land that wasn't their own. So they were exiles, minority people group and exiles. They were actually like pedestrian level influence. When the story starts, they're pretty much nobodies. And they move from being pedestrians to being people of position. And it's miraculous and that's the God through them. But there are some things that they do along the way that causes God to be able to work and to grow their influence. The other thing which I find quite surprising is that their, their personal life, their community life, the Jewish people in Persia at the time, they went from destruction, the threat of destruction, like they were going to be wiped out. They went from that to a place where they were able to celebrate and even establish a tradition that continues on even through up to the present day. And it was Mordecai and Esther, the influence of them. Now, at the start of the story, Esther and Mordecai are very similar to how Paul describes the Christians in Corinth. Uh, in fact, I think Paul's description of the Christians in Corinth is not too dissimilar to how we could describe ourselves. And that we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. For consider, brethren, God's call to you. Not many who are wise with merely human wisdom, not many of position and influence, not many of noble birth, have been called. But God has chosen the things which the world regards as foolish in order to put its wise men to shame. And God has chosen the things which the world regards as destitute of influence in order to put its powerful things to shame. Right there in the middle of those two verses is the most powerful little phrase, but God. So God is using Esther and Mordecai in 400 BC Persia, just as he wants to use you and I today to influence people and situations for his purpose. 
So we can easily see this is God's influence through them. What I'm hoping to do this morning is to unpack how they are able to um, have God inf- God's influence on them. What do they do that puts the natural and God puts the super on top? Now, many of you will know that the book of Esther is famous because in the 10 chapters, God is not mentioned ever. I don't think there's another book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. I mean, it's God's book. He should get all the, all the accolades, but he's not mentioned once. So I thought, how can we see God's influence on them if God's never mentioned? And then recently, in preparation for um, speaking this morning, I was reading through the book of Esther again from start to finish, and it suddenly struck me, and I was saying to Kathy, look at this, how many times the number seven appears in this book? Like right in the early chapters, there's a feast that takes seven days, and it was on the seventh day of the feast that the whole situation blew up, which was the catalyst for what was to follow. Um, Another thing I saw was there were seven nobles that the king asked for counsel. There were, it was the seventh year of the reign of the king when Esther became the queen. Um, When she became queen, she was served by seven handmaids that came from the royal household. And that's just in chapters one and two. Now, many of you will know also that seven is a biblical number which often represents completeness or perfection. And you see it right back at the early days in the book of Genesis and creation. And seven pops up all through the Bible and it concludes lots of references to seven in the end time book of Revelation. So from creation to revelation, God is at work. is showing us that he is perfect. What he does, he will complete. And that he, he, it's an indicator for us in the book of Esther that God is present and active. This reference to seven, I found that was, I'd never noted it before. The other thing I noted was, which I have noted before, is the amazing, we call coincidence, the amazing coincidence of events and the way that they, they've put in and happen so chronologically, no one could plan it and yet we see it all happen. So I give a tribute all of that to God, and, but I feel I'm in pretty good company because um, several uh, Bible scholars throughout the ages have also felt the same thing. Uh, A quote from Henrietta Mears says, every page, talking about the book of Esther, every page is full of God who hides himself behind every word. And the great British Bible scholar Matthew Henry wrote, if the name of God is not here, his finger is. Isn't that amazing? God's just going, hmm, hmm, hmm. So you may not know the story of Esther. Here it is in a nutshell. Mordecai is descended from Jewish exiles. He lives in Persia with his adopted daughter, Esther. The king, Xerxes, banishes his queen. 
Esther is selected as the new queen. Mordecai obtains employment at the palace gate. He uncovers an assassination plot against the king. Haman, an anti-Jewish prime minister, rises to prominence. Haman clashes with Mordecai over Mordecai's refusal to show him honour. Haman plans to kill, slaughter and annihilate the Jewish people across the kingdom. Mordecai encourages Esther to go to the king to plead for the lives of her people. The king honours Mordecai for his loyalty. Haman's plot against the Jews is exposed. He is killed. Mordecai becomes the prime minister. Oh, gosh. That's like in about 12 lines. Mordecai becomes the prime minister and counters the anti-Jewish legislation and the Jewish community, Mordecai and Esther, established the festival of Purim. So there's three, what I would say, seeds of influence that God waters and we now are the recipients of that from this book and we can maybe implement these things in our own life and ask God to water them by the Holy Spirit. So... The first one is consistency breeds trust. That is like if you say that you're going to do something, you're going to do it. And you, you can continuously operate in that same mode that is consistency. Billy Graham had a rule. His rule was right from the very first time he started travelling around as an evangelist, his rule was he would never be in a room alone with another woman if it wasn't his wife. When he was out, when he was at home, he didn't, it didn't matter. That was his rule. He was consistent through the age of uh, that preaching engagement time. He would never break his rule. And because of that, people were able to trust him. Consistency breeds trust. On February 2019, the Harvard Business Review cited three elements that develop trust, and they must be present in order to have a trust relationship. These were the three things, positive relationships, expertise, and good judgment, and the third thing was consistency. Those three things had to be present, they found when they did this big study, in order to create and develop trust. So Mordecai is in the kingdom of Persia. Xerxes is the king. It's the third year of Xerxes' reign. And we read this in verse uh, 7 of Esther chapter 2. This man, Mordecai, had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And then in verse 11 we read, Every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So between the first reference and that second reference, Esther has been selected as one of the potential nominees to be the new queen. This possibly happened in the sixth year of Xerxes' reign and 
then there was a whole year when the, the girls had their beauty treatments and so on before they could appear before the king. So at the minimum, apart from all the time that Mordecai was raising Esther as his own daughter, there would have been at least a year, at the minimum, where Mordecai would walk every day around to the harem just to check out how Esther was going. Every day. Every day. For at least a year. Now, that speaks to me of consistency. And that speaks to me of why Esther was willing to trust Mordecai when uh, we look to the next section. Consistency breeds trust. The next thing I see is that conviction breed, uh, bears loyalty. Conviction bears loyalty. You know, there have been explorers and inventors. There's been political leaders and social leaders who have really believed in a particular cause, a particular way of doing things, and they have followed that through to a conclusion, and they have gained people who believed in them, have been loyal to that idea. I was thinking about Thomas Edison, who famously quoted, uh, after the 999th time of trying to make the uh, filament for the light globe, uh, and each time, 999 times, it kind of went glowed for a bit and then went and he had to start again. He was committed to that particular process. He had a conviction that it would happen and all his team around him were with him. He said at that point, well at least now I know 999 ways not to make a light bulb. Esther was in the king's harem, and we read in chapter 2 and verse 10, Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to. See, all of that stuff with the consistency and the trust, that's now paying back, and in God's purpose, this is a very important a clue in the surprising story of influence. We read later on in, in uh, what is this, verse 20. Um, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She's now the queen. She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. And then later on, we read this. This is in a later chapter of Esther, verse 1. I think it's a chapter 8 or 9. On the same day, Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. It wasn't until this particular point where the plot against the Jews had been foiled and Esther had revealed to the king that she was a Jew because her um, people required it of her. Now she felt that she could uh, disengage from that, that point where Mordecai had said to her, you can't tell. And actually Mordecai had said, you've got to tell. Maybe it's for this time and this purpose 
that you've become queen. And so the conviction brought about the loyalty. She was loyal. She believed what Mordecai had told her was going to be the right thing to do. And in our lives, conviction leads to loyalty, which can in turn lead to influence. Finally, connection builds closeness. At the Hillsong Conference over the last couple of years, they have had a little segment which they call spheres of influence. And um, this idea of connection and closeness, I don't, I don't think we really fully understand, like we might have big dreams, and I think that's really great from God to have big dreams, but we must also be aware that the main influence we're going to have in our life is going to be with the people that we are connected to, the people that over time we get close to. They will be the people that we will influence the most. And we see that in Esther chapter 4. Esther at this stage is the queen. She's in the harem. She's kind of a little bit removed from the everyday things that are going on in the city. But we read here in Esther chapter 4, verse 3, And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. This was the decree that the Jews would be um, killed, destroyed, annihilated. They fasted, they wept, they wailed. Many people lay in burlap and ashes. When the queen's Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, who was doing the same kind of action, she was deeply distressed. And she sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. She didn't understand what was going on, but she was still, even having been in the palace for this number of years, she was still close to Mordecai. And she wanted things to be right. She didn't want him to be in this situation. Later on in the chapter, Mordecai is speaking to Esther. Verse 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from other, some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The connection between Mordecai and Esther is a pivotal play in the way God brings the people of uh, the Jewish heritage out of this really, really bad situation. There's enough relationship and connectedness and closeness in the relationship that Mordecai can speak into the life of Esther and tell her some stuff. She's the queen. He's just working at the gate of the palace. She could easily have said, no way. But because of that relationship, because of that connectedness, which has grown in, over time into closeness, she's willing to say, if I must die, I must die. And then the whole of the community get involved. So there's a bringing in the community. There's an influence there. And in the final chapter of Esther, Esther chapter 10, the whole chapter is really about Mordecai. 
In verse 3, we read, Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him high in esteem because he continued, listen to this, because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. It's the community. Influence into the community. So very briefly, we've only just touched on these things today, but very briefly, consistency breeds trust, which then will lead to influence. Conviction bears loyalty, which then will lead to influence. And connection builds closeness, which will lead again to influence as we apply these attributes to our lives and allow the Holy Spirit to water them, we too might be surprised at the resulting influence that we have on the people around us. Can I pray with us today? Thanks, team, if you'd like to come. Dear Lord, the starting point for influence is a relationship with you. There's plenty of worldly influence out there We recognise today that we want to be influencers for the kingdom of God in the 21st century. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these seeds of influence, consistency, connectedness and conviction and let them be watered by your Holy Spirit. Let them grow in us to the point where we become influencers of people around about us. Father, I pray for City Church and its community influence in this community as we all together pop the cork, as we all together water by the Holy Spirit, increase the seed of influence so our church will also increase in influence in the mountains, in the city, and beyond. Father, we pray today that you will water this word, cause it to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.